Welcome to the Postscript. Welcome to the Postscript. Welcome. So, uh, right, before we um, saw Possession, we watched another one of Zulawski's films, his second feature, Diabel. The Devil. Which is pretty, pretty good movie, pretty intense. It's pretty, it's a wild ride. Yeah. I want to get off Mr. Bones' wild ride. <laughs> yeah. It's literally like a wild ride. I love that movie, mm. but it was just fucking intense. Yeah. It's really pretty unique, Yeah, I would say. I mean, it feels like this historical fantasy almost. But again, it feels kind of personal. Well, at least to the main character. But I mean, it has this, this theme of religion as well. I mean, the devil is constantly popping up in the movie. <laughs> Yeah. Although we, not explicitly the devil, but... We were kind of comparing that actor to uh, John Goblicon. Yeah. He's kind of like this trickster, sneaky, funny... He's very like, almost like the like uh, in those old cartoons when you have an angel and a devil. He's yeah. like literally the devil on your shoulder, <laughs> making you do all sorts of insane and stupid shit. Yeah. I love the casting of him. I mm. just love the way he pops up. Like sometimes there's these wide shots and you see in the background... It's like a face, yeah. and it zooms in, and it's it's that fucking guy again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's creeping in the background. Yeah. So good. It's Initially, so good. he seems like he's the main character. Yeah, but he's more like the instigator because it's set in like a civil war or something in the 1700s, I think, in Poland. It's in the middle of the Prussian invasion of Poland. Right. In uh, the 1790s. Right. Would this... that be the reign of Frederick the Great? In Prussia, or is that a bit later? I'm not sure. I actually have a Prussian coin from that period. Oh, yeah. Attached to an old uh, pocket watch. And it's from, yeah, 17-something. Yeah. Cool. Maybe you can buy yourself a, a DVD of something. Yeah, right. it's probably worth, like, 10 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's probably worth less because it has a hole in it to attach it. Mm. But that is a very volatile period of European history. I mean, it's... In the wake of the the French Revolution and uh, Napoleon mm. coming to power. So a lot of chaos in Europe, and there's certainly a lot of chaos in that movie. But I mean, that's not the, that's just a setting, a yeah. chaotic setting. Like a country tearing itself apart, mm. it feels like. And that relates to possession too. Like the mm. setting isn't the point, but it reflects the main character's sort of uh, psyche. So, so how would you uh, explain what happens in this movie? I mean... In rough detail. <laughs> How would you describe it? I mean, it's basically this guy running around in the forest in the middle of winter. Uh, yeah, not, not the devil character. Because the devil character, he releases someone from jail and kind of instigates his journey. Jakob. Yeah, Jakob. Yeah. And he travels to find his family. Yeah, he does. And he also sends a nun with Jakob. And she's part of it too. But I mean, I don't really remember all the specifics of the family plot and stuff. And it feels very disjointed. It's almost like this Odyssean journey into war-torn Poland. Mm. Uh, and he, he sort of comes upon a lot of different characters and settings. And a lot of it relates back to his family life and stuff. And a lot of it is just bizarre and weird. Yeah, there's like some, some torrid family history. Yeah. And like an estate that's fallen apart. And like secret siblings. Yeah. And like a mother that's been absent but living close by. Was the dad 
dead or dying. Yeah, and... I think he was dead at this point. Yeah. But there's like scenes where the, the dead are living and stuff, as far as I recall. There's a lot of bizarre stuff going on, like especially in that uh, dilapidated home of theirs. Mm. Uh, a lot of horrible flashbacks and, and ghostly apparitions. And the devil, of course. Yeah, this, this John Goblicon character. <laughs> the stranger, I think, is referred yeah. to a, a lot. He's, he's basically an, an unnamed character. Yeah. Uh, but he's... but he's, he looks like somebody named John Goblicon, for sure. <laughs> he's... He, has a, he has great goblin energy. Yeah. He's, so, he's, kind of, he's very funny. He's kind of creepy. And he keeps popping up everywhere. Yeah, I mean, this movie is way funnier than Possession. We laughed a lot watching this movie. Yeah. It's not a comedy by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but there's so many weird characters. But it's almost equally as intense, I would say. I mean... Maybe even more intense. Yeah. Like, the intensity never goes away. Yeah. Like, it's just 100% intense yeah. all the way through. It's it's so relentless. I mean, it doesn't... It doesn't have any, like... Well, it does have a few quiet scenes, mm. but mostly it's just an inferno of action and intensity. Yeah, like situations that are just... I mean, all the characters are either catatonic and totally lost and wall damaged yeah. or they're manic and insane and I like mean, thirsty for something you don't know what yeah. i mean people don't talk to each other like regular human beings like they they like grab onto yeah. each other and like shake each other like and speak right into their faces and like shout uh or scream like it's insane i mean it's not very naturalistic again it's super over mm. the top like I mean, possession is is sort of toned down from yeah. this. I think it's just so relentless. Yeah, it's really like, and it has a lot of like long takes, and it uses a lot of like location, outdoor locations, and and films. Yeah, most and most of it takes place outdoors. There are some scenes like in in some Polish castles and stuff, mm. and the locations are beautiful, mm. and the cinematography is also beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really beautiful movie. Just the color palettes of the winter landscapes mm. and the there's a lot of like red hues in it mm. and uh, it definitely feels very diabolical. Yeah, yeah. It has this satanic energy to it. It reminds me a little bit of, of his debut film, Third Part of the Night, which has a similar style, a similar like a period setting. It's been so many years since I saw it that I don't recall it as much, but you know, my feeling is that this is the better movie and the more intense movie. Yeah, he probably learned a lot from the first movie mm. and used it in this. They're kind of, yeah, it's kind of like a similar approach to movie making, mm. which is not like the approach most people have. <laughs> no, I mean, this approach is insane, but I love that he made it. Like it's from 72, 73, mm. about 10 years before Possession, which I mean, he seems more mature at that point, but Diablo is really competent as well. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's... It's kind of uh, astounding, really. And, I, and you know, once we watched it, I was like, I, I want to watch that again sometime. Mm. Uh, whereas Possession is like, it's such a feel-bad movie. I don't <laughs> know if I want to expose myself to that, like, soon. Maybe at some point. <laughs> yeah. But uh, The Devil is like, yeah, I want to see that again. Zelowski's career took some turns. I think he was basically thrown out of Polish cinema for this film. <laughs> yeah, it, it got a lot of backlash, as far as I recall. And for the time, like in Poland in the 70s, like I can imagine this being quite like polarizing. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people were deeply put off and shocked by this film. I think it, it was does have some so, shocking scenes. Like yeah. there's some really violent stuff going on. But yeah, he, he, he seemed to face a lot of repercussions for his movie making in Poland. Like mm. in general, he wasn't, I mean, on some level, he must have been like appreciated as an artist because he did get funding for, for movie making well, stuff. But yeah, well, what happened was he went to Paris 
and started making French movies. And he had, in particular, one film called The Most Important Thing, Love, which is a good movie. It's it's very French, definitely. And it was... Uh, Frenchified. Very, was that like in the in the French New Wave uh, era? No. This would have been the 70s. And it's not that kind of a style either or, or approach. So it's French, but it's not that kind of French. Well, I mean, it's French in that it feels French. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's kind of like a love story. It's about this, like, still photo guy who's interested in this actress. She's already married. It kind of has this slight stalker virus, but she's also, yeah, she's, she's a pretty intense. She's kind of like, she has, like, a lot of push and pull whether or not, you know, her emotional life is kind of hysterical. Not in a funny way, but in a frightening way. <laughs> yeah. Well, we certainly have seen him do it in possession. So. Yeah, but that film did really well. Yeah, that was a success. Yeah. So. so he was allowed to come back and make On the Silver Globe, which we'll talk about in the next episode, which was this gigantic project that eventually kind of got finished, but the production was shut down and he went on to make Possession in Germany and um, had some few films here and there. His last film was called Cosmos, which uh, I thought was okay, not great. Kind of like a, I don't know, psychological, somewhat humorous melodrama family affair thing you're not really selling it no i i thought it was kind of okay <laughs> things i liked about it but i guess i was maybe hoping for something closer to these 80s movies of his which are very intense and if i made movies i think that would be the most dreaded review it mm. was kind of okay yeah kind of okay that's horrible yeah. mediocrity i mean I, maybe it has to do with expectations sometimes these things do but yeah, he has an interesting career. It definitely went places. and He, died he literally in, went a lot of places. Yeah, he died uh, not too long ago as well. But, uh, yeah, Diablo, very interesting film, I think. Yeah. I mean, the, just the frenetic pacing of it is so strange. Mm. Like, it really defies normal narrative structure in a major way. Mm. Like, it's just so overwhelming. Mm. Not just in like the acting, but like the way it's paced, like mm. the way the edit it's edited, mm. and, and like strangely enough, a lot of the cinematography uh, and stuff is kind of quiet, and there there are a lot of still shots. I mean, there's a mm. lot of moving shots too, but it's just usually there's a still shot, and there's some insane shit happening yeah. in this beautiful, you know, relaxed winter landscape. Mm. I really love like when he comes upon this circus, this troop of like yeah. acrobats and uh, this guy who tries to rape him. Uh, like there's, yeah, there's so many bizarre characters. Mm. And the circus like appears sporadically mm. throughout the movie. You see like random jugglers and acrobats <laughs> in the background. And <laughs> it just adds up. this sense of like dream like, uh, yeah, it's so bizarre. Mm. It's but, playful, but it's also very stark. It seems so cold. Like, mm. it seems like Poland in January or February. It's not like a beautiful Christmas forest. It feels like war-torn yeah. Poland. Mm. And it feels bone-chillingly cold. Mm. So even though it has a frenetic pacing and stuff, it feels very, like, yeah, just cold. But also, like, there's very little love. Mm. There's very little, like, warm feelings between the characters, too. Mm. There's a lot of dark history yeah. and pain and, yeah. And eventually, like, murder and stuff. It's a really cool movie, though. Mm. Yeah, it's it's something else. <laughs> something else. It's definitely very, very good. And, you know, not surprisingly that it's quite obscure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult movie. And, I mean, especially for the time, it must have been just really, <laughs> uh, really weird. I mean, I can't imagine in, like, 73 going to a theater and watching mm. this. 
as a Polish grocer mm. wanting to escape the quotidian of <laughs> of East Block life. <laughs> Just going to catch a, a movie. Latest flick. Yeah, the latest communist flick. I mean, yeah, I mean, wasn't he like, it was expressly like anti-communist propaganda he was like accused of making. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. It's not really that. Like, Well, it's not, it's definitely not nationalistic. In I term. mean, it's not. It's, more, very, it's very ambiguous. Yeah. Um, and I mean, authoritarian regimes do not like ambiguity. Mm, like they do not like it. No. So it's not easy like being a comedian. No. Or a poet. Yeah, or a poet. I mean, it's good if you like an artist that draws like people with impressive physique and the correct nationality, yeah. you know, doing a glorious thing for your nation. Yeah. And, you know, you get a career in a, an authoritarian state, mm. but not easy being like an avant-garde filmmaker, <laughs> making insane like historical references and, and stuff like that. I can see why he would be viewed as quite subversive. Mm, yeah. Well... He's never not subversive, I would say. Well, do you think his last movie was subversive? It subverted my expectations <laughs> of what it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, like Game of Thrones subverted expectations by yeah. making the ending horrible. I've never seen a franchise tank that quickly. Like, yeah, nobody and, and, talks about Game of Thrones anymore. And such a phenomena, it was... Yeah, like, it was everywhere for, yeah. like, five years, and then it just completely vanished. Mm. Nobody, like, it's like some, some horrible secret nobody wants to discuss mm. anymore. Like, I can't believe... We as a society got so much into that garbage. Well, I mean, most of the series were still good. But... Yeah, I mean, it was really good. Mm. And and then it just shit the bed mm. in a gigantic way. You know what? It reminds me a little bit of... It reminds me of Mass Effect. Oh, yeah, people a... hated that third game. Yeah, well, not, well, the game itself... Well, the ending specifically. Yeah, the, the ending was hated. The third game was good, but... Um... I thought the third game was actually really good, mm. but the ending was just complete well, garbage well it was kind of boring and i you know i i like those games i played them i had a character go through them like you could because say files would go across games but i wasn't that invested either like it not being a great ending when growing up you know most games had terrible endings <laughs> they were uh, yeah endings not, were boring yeah but like some games were just so difficult you couldn't even get to the yeah, ending uh, and definitely. i mean one of my favorite games of all time thief the dark project no, mm. no not the dark project but uh, the metal age yeah thief 2 I've never finished that game. Mm. Like, I've never gotten past the last mission. Mm. It's still one of my favorite games. Yeah. But, yeah, Mass Effect, like, it, it's not, like, some mind-blowingly amazing game series. It was good. It's it was good. really good at yeah. times. But the thing that made the ending so terrible was the fact that you've been making all these choices throughout the game series. Mm. And those choices mattered in the games. Mm. But when it came time to the ending, like, no, nothing you did made any difference. Like, you made, like, one choice towards the end, and that, like, defined everything. Which was viewed as like super terrible. Like, well, like it was and kind not, of undermining like the feeling of agency, I think. Yeah, for sure. Like the agency completely vanished in a game that had been mm. so much about agency and making moral choices that had an effect, mm. a mass effect, if you will. Definitely. But that's what's interesting. Like it was kind of like a flagship franchise that was everywhere and suddenly just disappeared because, you know, it tanked. Like, yeah. Okay, you sold your games, but it doesn't matter how you end your But thing. it left a sour feeling in a lot of people's mouth. It ruined a lot of goodwill. And then they released a Mass Effect game a couple of years later. Andromeda. Yeah, which was really quite poorly received. I didn't uh, play it. And was also viewed as like technically bad. Like there was a lot of animation and, uh, and, yeah. and model issues. Mm. So yeah, they, they kind of ruined a lot of goodwill. And goodwill is difficult to regain once you've lost it. I think one of the few game developers that actually have regained goodwill is uh, 
is it Hello Games? The makers of No Man's Sky. Mm. And they took years and years yeah, of, yeah. Free, of free updates, yeah. really good updates. Yeah. A lot of hard work to yeah. regain the, the goodwill they lost. Mm. Yeah, they did good work on that. For sure. But uh, speaking of games, uh, there's been a pretty big game that came out this spring. I've finished it not long ago. How are you going with Elden Ring? Well, I've been away for a while, so I haven't finished it. I left as sort of like right at the end, mm. right at the end, yeah. Pretty close, yeah. Yeah, and, and now I'm finding it a bit scary to jump back in because I'm <laughs> like at the end. So, but yeah, we'll see. But remember, there's a lot of optional. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of optional places to explore. Yeah, I've I've explored most of the those. Mm. Yeah. So, have you been to Rivendell? Rivendell? That's that's in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, no, but there's a place very reminiscent. You'll get it when you see it. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> I I don't think I've been to Rivendell. Do you get to meet Elrond and stuff? Not quite. I wouldn't say so. You do meet, to get to meet some pretty nasty people. Yeah, I mean, you do that through the entire game. <laughs> yeah. That's all you do, really. Yeah, it's such an enjoyable game. I mean, like, I felt almost worn out by it at the end because it's so massive and such a such a scope to that game. Yeah, I mean, you really got to invest time in it. Mm. And, I mean, I, I feel that too. Like, I'm towards the very end now and I'm feeling like I'm a bit tired. Mm. <laughs> I'm a bit tired because the game is so huge. Mm. I've loved it, though. It's, it's a really, really, really interesting project. And it's just so ambitious. Mm. And I mean, it makes sense because From Software has done a lot of big games and they're tackling like this open world genre. And I mean, you sort of have to be ambitious to pull that off. And of course, George R. R. Martin. I mean, talking about Game of Thrones, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how involved it was in this, but I mean, the lore isn't the most interesting thing about this game. Although I do like the world, like it's, it's interesting. Very I always like that stuff in these games. And yeah. I feel like, you know, I finished the game one round of it yeah. at least. So now you can watch like lore videos on YouTube. And like hidden mechanics and like, I'm not really into PvP so much, but I like watching... PvP is fun. In, in I, I like watching some of them like exploring different weapons and different... Different builds and stuff. Different like weird shit you can do. Like there's so many... I mean, a lot of the weapons have like these very specific special techniques. Right. And a lot of weapons are like really obscure to find too. So there's just a lot of hidden stuff. The thing that's kind of interesting, I started thinking of it a little bit differently, you know, after... Because I, I tend to go with a build and I go pretty cleanly with that. I don't experiment so much as you can see some people do online. But I started thinking of it... In some ways, it's almost like a, a deck builder game. Yeah. Where you like, you kind of finding synergies of how things mix together in weird ways. Yeah, or, then... or finding ways in which there are no synergies and you're just sort of wasting the combinations. Right. Yeah. How, how we can do really weird stuff and mess around and play. Yeah. And no, so, yeah. like some stuff is like super almost broken. Mm. Like some stuff is so efficient. There are a couple of methods in the game that are just too overpowered that I, I just chose not to use it because yeah. it made the game way too easy. Like there's this one thing you can do where you sort of where you cast a spell and deflect it and you get like these daggers. If you do it in a certain way, like it just causes insane amounts of damage. It's <laughs> just it's no fun. And for a while I think they had these dogs. I think it's been patched, but they had these dogs that bit you and they just gave you immensely damage. Yeah. Like these little dogs. I like dogs. That's been a very pleasurable, creative, cultural experience. Yeah. I love all the like little weird characters mm. that you can meet. 
I feel like, unfortunately, I missed a lot of, like, the side quests and stuff. Well, because, like... You have some, to follow a guide. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes, like, you, you got to be in the correct time and place. And yeah. if you miss it, like, you got one chance. Mm -hmm. And then you never see it again or whatever. Uh, Did you meet Patches, though? Did you have... No, I haven't met my Patches. I haven't met Patches, though. I mean, he's a staple of the game series. Yeah, he's good in this. <laughs> yeah. I remember in, in Dark Souls 1, he treats you badly. Yeah, he does. He's a, <laughs> uh, he's a terrible... There's actually a really good... There's um, one of these YouTubers who specializes in the, the from software games, Vatavidja. He has like a breakdown of patches from like uh, I think it's probably Demon Souls to Dark Souls Three, so including Bloodborne. But I mean, him being a constant implies that these universes are connected. Kind of, but he kind of he explores this character. I mean, the Dark Souls games are a constant. Yeah, I know that, but, but the Elden Ring is well. Yeah. Some people say it's connected. Multiverse. Oh no! Oh, not, not, not oh, anyway, but that video anyway is really good and really fun. And there's a lot of things I didn't really get about that character. I really started to like him a lot more after I saw that video. Actually, okay. <laughs> there's something beautifully tragic about that character. I mean, there's something beautifully tragic about the Dark Souls universes mm. in general. But Patches is like a, a bit of comedy as well. So. Mm, definitely cruel comedy. Cruel comedy for sure. Actually, I heard that the next game they're making is a Armored Core game which is like this mech yeah yeah i know uh, uh, i never played I, those games i like seeing a lot of of the gameplay stuff but it's like so different from mm. their other stuff but they've done a few quite different things yeah historically yeah but i'm interested in that i'm interested to see them go and like make a completely different type of game that's clearly not a souls like but you know the next souls like game is it's going to focus around patches yeah <laughs> you're going to finally be able to play as him oh wouldn't that be great? Well, I, after I finished Elden Ring, I also started playing Sekiro again a little bit, uh, which is also very satisfying. I kind of wanted to do a deep dive into like the parrying mechanics and stuff. That parrying is the most difficult things in all these games. I never just I just can't master it. Yeah, it's it's in the like the Souls games and stuff. It's difficult. It's the central mechanic in Sekiro, of course, and learning to use it as a Souls player is it feels you know unintuitive, but it gets really satisfying. Yeah, but I mean, it's built more around that. I think yeah. in Elden Ring, it's not really built around parrying, mm. although it is like the most powerful counter attack you mm. can do. Like you don't have a stamina bar in Sekiro, but you do have a posture bar yeah. that you kind of break, and sometimes. The best way to break posture is just to counterattack a lot. And some some enemies, that's the only way to take them. And that can be counterintuitive because you're looking at the health bar and you're seeing nothing happening. Yeah. What's going on? But suddenly you break the posture and it's a one hit. Right. That's satisfying. It's, and I mean, uh, it's it's cool that they like, like have a specific... I mean, it's not necessarily cool that they have a specific way of intending you to mm. do it. But it's nice that you sometimes have to learn a technique in a game. Yeah, I mean, it, some of that stuff is the hardest stuff that I think they've done because it's so specific. Like in Elden Ring or whatever, there's so many creative ways you can go. Anything can be cheesed. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you really want to cheese it. If you don't like the boss and you're yeah. just having a bad time, you can cheese it. I yeah. mean, and who fucking cares? And that's that's good, I think. Yeah, that is Because sometimes good. those boss fights, they just get annoying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just unfair. <laughs> I mean, it is unfair, but it's... It's also annoying. Yeah, I mean, you get sometimes you just get to a point where you just I'm straight up not having a good time, mm. and I mean, you really you just have to get good. But uh, sometimes you just get the, cheese. The, the getting ain't getting good. Yeah, sometimes yeah. you just need to get the cheese. Yeah, you get to do you know choose the path of the rat and yeah. get the cheese. Yeah. Cheese down. Cheese, cheese it down. I like it when that's built into the game though. When it's like uh, a way you can. Is it? Uh... Dark Souls, as this looks, like this huge volcano 
monster enemy that there's kind of a built-in cheese that you can do i like that that the game has like an an option for you that's uh, kind of built into the environment yeah for sure i mean i mean having options to defeat enemies and stuff mm. is always really cool mm. i mean it's a lot of hard work to incorporate that for enemies so it's usually not done mm. but i mean in games like uh hitman for instance mm. you just have like an arsenal of tools yeah. and ways of going about it and you choose your own way I often find that very satisfying because mm. you're, I mean, you're doing it your own way and figuring stuff out and, and doing creative problem solutions instead of like, you have to parry this enemy, mm. which is, I mean, it's interesting in its own way and teaching you techniques and stuff, but having like one solution to a problem is not usually very satisfying. Yeah. I mean, it encourages play rather than just following an order, yeah. you know, and uh, that kind of playfulness is like I had a big kick on on deck building games because because uh, you're a nerd well initially i thought like card games looked so boring i was so uninterested but then inscription came around and uh that just looked cool and yeah. it just really clicked with me that's and, a gateway drug uh, yeah and and since then because what i've realized is that a lot of these deck building games also mechanically connect to uh, ftl which is a game i really like like they use a lot of similar things in terms of narrative and structure and like Slay the Spire, that very explicitly takes a lot of things from FTL, but also Inscription. And that kind of play of synergy and that kind of combining things playfully to see what happens. That's some very interesting mechanics in there. I love that, playing with synergies. I mean, it's one of the coolest things about Elden Ring, the synergies yeah. you can get. It's one of the reasons I love Binding of Isaac so much. It's all the insane amount of synergies. Mm. And things that are detrimental mm. like and sometimes you just don't know what an item is and you pick it up and you ruined your build mm. and i love that sort of feeling of being able to fuck it up at any moment yeah it's... inscriptions is so much like that as well and like you can mess about with the cards so much you can they're animal themed but you can take bits of animals and put them onto other animals and you can kind of mix them up and as you say you can definitely the thing is the game is is unfair it's deeply unfair and it's not balanced but you can make it unfair on your terms, which is great. It's it's very playful in that way. Yeah. And I, I love the idea that, okay, we're not just going to make like a perfectly balanced game. We're just going to let you play around with the lack of balance in a way. Right. It's so fun. It's so, so great, that game. <laughs> I mean, often like a, a lot of really good game moments come from like finding some, some way it's unbalanced and using it. Mm. And that often is just hilarious yeah. or like leads to some unexpected consequence. Mm. Yeah, that that's great. Like that's that's such an integral part of like gaming as as play. Yeah, you know? but or, I felt like there was a period of games where it became very rigid, and you'd have to follow very specific steps to do. Yeah, like very like narrative driven single player games where you cannot escape the boundary of the level in any way, and like. And that also made like you can't make games too difficult. Yeah. Oh God. But also you can't you can't explore or play. Like there's so many, I don't know, shooters and stuff that just feel, they feel very rigid. I mean, I think game developers are getting more aware of it, but there was certainly a period of time where like there was so much hand-holding mm. and so much elements on screen where it's like, go here, do this, mm, do yeah. that, like the object markers and stuff like that. And it's just like, when there's a marker on screen, you're not really looking at the world around you. Mm. You're just following blindly the spot. It's very unsatisfying Yeah. as a game mechanic. Mm. Like Skyrim, for instance, does have a lot of that, but there are ways of turning it off and suddenly like you're really invested in the world and on a whole different level. Mm, that's true. So you can really like try out how that stuff plays with your expectation of how you relate to the world. 
it makes me think of like these Ubisoft open world model. Yeah, they're probably very... like the the worst example. Well, not the worst, but probably one of the most well known examples. Right? Yeah, where almost all their games have the same stuff, and you just reskin it and upgrade the graphics a bit, and like maybe have some different mechanics. Mm. But the essential stuff is still the same. Like you have these towers mm. you got to get to and like mm. these areas you got to explore and the same like secrets with like shit you got to count up. And mm. it's like... It becomes a chore. Yeah, it's not a, it's not it a becomes a to-do list. That's certainly like one of my least favorite modes of gameplay. Mm. That's the sort of thing that it's really fresh and interesting about Elden Ring. Like the way it treats its map. For it's sure. like the way you think you know the size of a place and you're constantly surprised by like... Not just the geographical size, but the amount of stuff to do. Like it's the lack of boundaries. Like you're, you're actually surprised at like there's no real limitations. Like it's like that Todd Howard say, like you see that mountain, you can go there. <laughs> and like it's, but it's so true in Elden Ring. Like everything you see is like, I remember so many moments in the game where I was like, yeah, that place looks really cool. Too bad I won't be able to get there or whatever. <laughs> and like, of course you'll be able to get there later. <laughs> and that's just really liberating and mm -hmm. and such a positive gameplay experience. It's also so. There's so much to explore. There's a lot of the time, if I went back to a location that I'd been, and I felt like I'd been pretty thorough in my exploration, I just find something completely new. For sure. And some new stuff to do. And just the level design is so good and so intricate. It works on so many levels. That... I mean, they really took a leaf from Dark Souls 1 with the intricacy and looping back mm. of uh, the world, uh, world design. It's just really lovely to see mm. that kind of level design instead of the you know totally l linear sort of one path design that is so common in a lot of games of course this is an open world game but in a lot of open world games there's not a lot of level design mm. like Elden Ring like has a lot of level design because yeah. there's a lot of compartmentalized parts of the world mm. it feels very handcrafted and very intentional yeah, That's which, which just... is a problem with a lot of open world games. Yeah. They just feel super bland mm. and you throw a lot of the same like Ubisoft elements mm. all over the map. Like uh, you got to pick up these golden birds mm. here and whatever boring reskinned element you've seen a thousand times before. Mm. But here, like you, you can find like unique stuff all around the map. Mm. And uh, not That's just a... that, but like different mechanics and stuff. Yeah, and it's... like this thing like, you know, hidden areas, secrets and like things being different at nighttime and like characters moving about. It feels like a very dynamic space Yeah, that has a lot of potential that you don't know about. And like, what are these trees, these uh, ethereal trees, these kind of white see-through trees that you can activate and then a ghost man starts walking in a direction yeah what is that exactly why are those things around yeah where's the tooltip yeah ubisoft help me out and some of these statues that you can activate and they kind of point towards a cave and there's lots of things that you don't really know what they are well it's not specifically described and that's the beauty of mm. it like you actually have to engage with the game world mm. instead of engaging with some game designer telling you what you're supposed to mm. do which is boring as fuck mm. And like, even though that leads to some annoying moments, like what am I supposed to do here or whatever? The design is usually good enough that you're able to figure it out in Elden Ring anyway. But I remember like in Morrowind, for instance, mm. like there was just no handholding whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. And you'd often end up like just not knowing what to do to yeah. get to the next step in the quest. But like, I still prefer that way more because when you actually do figure it out, you feel a real sense of yeah. accomplishing the quest. And like in Skyrim, you, mostly you're just, you know, checking off the, the box. Mm. 
and most of the fun in the game is just coming from exploring, not doing the actual... Well, that's what I liked about Skyrim, is just not doing the main quest and just jumping around, picking up alchemy things and mixing mixing things together, exploring like drug caves and going into these new towns and exploring and doing some side quests. Yeah. I mean, that's always been the best part of Bethesda games because their main quests have been, in my opinion, kind of poorly written mm. since since Oblivion. Mm. Not that they've released a lot of games since Oblivion, really. I mean, two Elder Scrolls games. Yeah, I guess they'll make another one at some point. Yeah, they'll probably release it in, what, 2030? Because mm. they're still milking Skyrim. Yeah, it's weird. I can't understand how that's I mean, possible. that's probably like, they've had the most system releases of any game I can think mm. of. It's such a meme at this point. It must sell well, I guess. Yeah, I mean, certainly it does. Like, every time they re-release it, it garners a lot of sales. It's still a good game. Like, mm. I find myself, like, wanting to play it again, like, every now and again. Mm. And then I realize, like, I know I'm just going to boot it up and play, like, a couple of hours yeah. and get bored. So. Yeah. There's not so much juice left. In no. That. They've really, like, wrung the corpse of that game. So, like, every drop of juice is just it's evaporated at this point. The last time I played it, I tried out the mod that was eventually turned into a game, The Forgotten City. Okay. You, you know about this. No. There's a mod in Skyrim where you're kind of, you're stuck in this dwarven town where something has happened. Dweamer town, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that's what they call them. Yeah, that's, that's uh, the reskin dwarfs. And there's like a mystery going on, almost like a Agatha Christie mystery thing. Oh, wow. About traveling in time. Which, because I knew that they were making a game out of it, and this mod had gotten a lot of positive attention. I played it, and I thought it was kind of okay. <laughs> like, kind of annoyed me a little bit, but it's it's interesting. I mean, in terms of what you can do in a mod, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, and the game, which came out last year, or earlier this year, Forgotten City, has got a lot of good reviews. I'm very interested in playing that. Yeah, so probably it's improved quite a bit since the mod. Yeah, yeah. It's also, it's it's set to, like, Roman times. Okay. That's interesting. There's not a lot of games set in it, Roman it looks times, really actually. good. I think it's a more or less a one-man development team. And he's, he wasn't a game designer before. A lot of game developers actually started through modding mm. Bethesda games. I mean, you can say what you will about the games themselves, but they've always been extremely modding-friendly. Yeah, that's And I've nice. had a lot of really high-quality and interesting mm. mods. I mean, they usually release like game developer kit or whatever it's called. Uh, That's really good. I really like that. Yeah, I love that that method of releasing games mm. and being open to people modding your games, mm. unlike like Nintendo or whatever, mm. who are just super opposed to it. Yeah, the, Nintendo. I feel like they're like Disney. They have to protect the like a child friendly brand. In and a they're way. so rigid. There's no dialogue between the fans yeah. and and Nintendo. They just do whatever the fuck mm. they feel like doing and. It's annoying. Uh, and they're super litigious too. Like they'll yeah. sue you for using any little yeah. bit of media. Which is a shame. It's such a bad way of engaging with the people who actually use your products. Like mm. it creates just a lot of bad energy. It's kind of an ownership idea that's overpowering and like a, a brand ideal. That's very, as you say, rigid and kind of dumb. Yeah, especially when you see what like an open modding scene does to a game. Mm. Like it keeps it alive forever. Yeah. Like the Thief series, for instance, it's like a really small game, really. And the studio's been dead for like 20 years. But there's still new missions being released for it because it has an active modding mm. scene and it had active modding tools and it had a really like helpful uh, community around it. And that stuff, it's it's really, really positive in terms of what it can do to the game community. And then you have these companies who just do anything they can to stamp it out. Yeah, it's, it's so weird. It's super weird. 
But maybe on that note, we will stamp out uh, this conversation as well. Yes, stamp out this episode. <laughs> Thanks for listening us to us having a little bit of a chat. Fireside chat. We've had a bit of a falling out of the schedule, but we're hoping to be a bit more regular going forward. Yeah. And if you want to get in touch, of course, send an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. With your inquiries yes. and complaints. And complaints, yes. And threats. No threats, thank you. Okay. The music for this episode was made by Umulium. That's Ius Garnes and Svara Ogor. That's me. Yes, that's you. And the artwork was made by me, Thomas Simonsen. Which is you. Which is I. And with that... We'll leave you with a quote. No, actually not. <laughs> we'll just leave you. Bye-bye. And a fare thee well to you, traveler. <laughs>